Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 5, Episode 2 Grasmere to Patterdale. We were high up on the remote fell tops in thick cloud, and it was raining heavily. Saturated or not, there was nowhere else to go but onward. We found a large boulder behind which Peter sheltered to drain his boots and wring out his socks. Soon we were under way again, and the higher we climbed, the more Peter's spirits rose. Once again all was well with the world, well, more or less. During the climb I mulled over the similar circumstances that led to the accident I'd witnessed on the trail. Both Helen diving across the mud hole and Peter's watery mishap had been caused by hikers banking up at a bottleneck to provoke a hasty move by those in front, causing a mishap. I made a mental note not to let others panic me into taking ill-considered action. The mist lifted slightly, allowing us to identify several ghostly landmarks noted in the guidebook. The large boulders, the stone cairn, and finally, the dry stone wall confirmed our arrival at Hawes Gap. Before us, the black lake of Grisdale Tarn rested at the head of a long descending valley. Off to the northwest, the brutal peaks of Dollywagon Pike, Nethermost Pike, and Helvellyn. To the southeast, the grisly St. Sunday Crag stretched skyward to the heavens. That is, of course, on a clear day. There was no enchanted landscape to captivate us that morning. All remained hidden in a clammy shroud that challenged resolve and restricted visibility to a few steps. From the northern end of Grisdale Tarn, there are three alternative routes to Patterdale. The route I'd like to have taken was the high trail over Helvellyn. It's the most challenging and spectacular path that includes a nerve-wracking balancing act along the narrow ridge of Striding Edge, a section reputed to be Wainwright's favourite stretch of the entire coast-to-coast -coast trek. My second choice was the easier high route which follows the sheer ridge along the windswept St. Sunday Crag. For us there was little fear of being blown off a cliff or having our nerve tested while shuffling along a precipitous razorback ridge. The weather left us no alternative but to follow the tumbling waters of Drysdale Beck along the valley floor. Before setting off, we decided to confirm our position on the map. Damn! I've lost my prescription specs, Peter exclaimed, searching his pockets. They must have fallen out when I stumbled into the stream. We were both busy with the guidebook when our tin-legged companion thrust his head over my shoulder, wedging in between the two of us. Maps! are a complete mystery to me, he barked. He continued to make his point by looking at each of us in turn, swinging his head from left to right to gauge our reaction. None of that would have been more than a minor irritant had it not been for the reappearance of his facial adornment. With every twist of his head, a thick rope of yellow-green snot flicked back and forward between Peter and I in search of a permanent home. I moved off quickly, to a snot-free zone to establish where we were. During the old gentleman's bizarre act, two figures appeared out of the gloom from the direction we were heading. They were in high spirits, no doubt enlivened, as I am, by the outdoors. Which of you guys fell in the water? One of them demanded, in a rich American drawl. 
Hey, Dad! barked our snot-encrusted friend with malicious delight. The new arrivals looked Peter up and down with mild amusement before confirming our position and direction. You'll all get wet feet before too long, jibed the English half of the duo. The rains have lifted Grisdale Tarn, and the outflow cuts the path a little further on. With a cheery farewell, they turned on the heels and soon vanished from sight into the mist. The stream was running full and wide, but not deep enough to cover the long line of stepping stones that stretched between the banks. The chilly water perturbed our doddering companion not one jot. In true form, he waded straight into the icy stream and, by some miracle of resolve, managed to stumble, stagger and sway the entire crossing on his insensitive, rust-proof limbs. On reaching the far bank, he made off down the valley without a single backward glance. He galloped down the steep incline with the confidence of a fleet-of-foot mountain goat on a rotting mission. I marvelled at the wondrous thing that gravity can be when working in one's favour. With mixed feelings of guilt and relief, I watched him disappear into the murk and soon wondered whether he'd existed at all. Perhaps we'd been visited by a mountain spirit who had tagged along for amusement's sake. When Peter and I discussed the wrinkly reprobate later, we thought the nickname Dewdrop was appropriate, if a trifle understated. In Australia, I'd come across several river crossings where the space between the final stepping stone and the river bank was too wide to be bridged in one stride. On those occasions, wet feet were guaranteed because the final step or two was through water. For this reason, I chose not to use the stepping stones nor emulate dewdrops antics by shipping water into my boots. I went barefoot, paddling on riverbed pebbles which were gritty but mercifully round and smooth. The crossing was easy, but icy cold. The refreshing tingle of handkerchief-dried feet in socks and boots was infinitely preferable to chapped toes rasping against sodden clumped socks inside sodden boots. As my feet are already wet, said Peter, I'll try the stepping stones. He set off across the chain of a dozen stepping stones as nimbly as a tightrope walker. He made the far bank, having never once put a foot wrong. Clearly, no Australian joker had seen fit to remove the final stepping stone just for the hell of it. Neither birdsong nor creaking trees are heard in that desolate place. A chorus of gushing waterfalls and gurgling streams is the music of the mountain tops. In many places the cascading waterfalls had cut deep into the mountainside. Oddly, the gutters down which the water danced and surged retained a jagged freshness that belied the bedrock's tremendous age. Water, left to its own devices, is only capable of taking the easiest way to the lowest point. With the ground waterlogged, surface water had nowhere else to go but to take the path of least resistance by following down the track, transforming it into a treacherous ditch. Further along the valley, the mist lifted higher up the fells, revealing a spectacular panorama of escarpments and cliffs that hemmed us in on both sides. The Cumbrian mother and daughter we'd first met on Dent Hill were sheltering in a nook in the lee of the mountain rescue and climber's hut called Rothwaite Lodge. Surprisingly, in those harsh conditions, they gave every impression of experiencing pure contentment. Their mud-spattered faces glowed with such cheerful enthusiasm and zest for life that at first glance they seemed slightly manic. As they didn't appear overly dangerous, we joined them for lunch. 
we ate in silence, for there was no need to speak. The spectacular antics of Ruthwaite Beck made conversation redundant. The mighty waters danced and twirled through a series of gushing waterfalls that cascaded down six hundred feet into a pool at our feet. In keeping with the principle of crime prevention, we tried to maintain a respectable distance between ourselves and Dewdrop. Unfortunately, he was a slippery customer that couldn't easily be avoided. He was slumped on a rock looking crestfallen and weary. I assumed he'd adopted the pathetic pose in the hope of fooling some unsuspecting innocent into helping him along the way. It's hard to resist the honourable behaviour of one's upbringing, particularly the basic traits of human compassion as taught at Sunday school through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Fortunately, both Peter and I had a sufficiently honed sense of self-preservation to ignore Dewdrop's pleading gaze. We wished him a hearty g'day and passed by as quickly as possible on the other side. He soon realised his bogus foil of pathetic helplessness had failed. Quick as a flash, he was on his tin legs, tottering along behind. Further down the track, we managed to shake him off when he teamed up with the couple whose sudden arrival had earlier unnerved Peter at the stream crossing. We made the White Lion pub in Patterdale by mid-afternoon, where we were greeted with a friendly hello from two polished and perfumed friends, Hilda and Helen. No sooner had we ordered our drinks than Colleen arrived to join us in the tales of the day's daring do. You might not be very pleased with the digs, Colleen put in, but wouldn't be drawn to say more. Peter had booked our first farm stay, and when we drove into the farmyard, all hell broke loose. Dozens of dogs started yelping and barking uncontrollably from inside a large stone barn. I thought the farm doubled as a boarding kennels, as well as a bed and breakfast. We were fully aware that barking dogs and sleep are not a happy mix. The farmhouse was a plain whitewash building with small windows and substantial two-feet-thick walls. The vestibule was decorated with the preserved remains of hunting kills, heads that had once belonged to fox, hare, squirrel and mink grinned a toothy welcome. Hello, I'm Shirley, the landlady said happily. She was an elderly countrywoman, full of warmth and unruffled acceptance, who welcomed us like old friends. Our sodden, muddy boots were of no concern. This is a working farm, said Shirley, laughing. Compared with farm hands, your boots are like patent leather dancing pumps. She stuffed our boots with old newspaper before arranging them on the hearth to dry in front of the coal fire. The farmhouse had a comforting smell with which I was very familiar. It's a soft, peppery tang, a complex mix of animals, grain, chaff, and the earth itself, a smell I'd known from childhood working on farms in the Isle of Man, and more recently from helping on a friend's beef cattle property in Australia. Shirley told us her forebears had been hill farmers for generations, and followed a long tradition of hunting game and predatory animals that were inclined to kill and eat sheep. To commemorate success as hunters, every available nook and cranny was crammed with hunting paraphernalia. The grisly remains of their quarry were displayed throughout the house. A rampant fox with a pheasant in its mouth stood sentinel in a large glass cabinet in a niche above the stairs. 
Every available surface provided an opportunity to display a vast collection of China birds and animals as a silent tribute to the local wildlife that posed no threat to sheep. Just because country folk hunt wild animals doesn't mean to say they don't love and respect them, said Shirley. You might find this odd, but I love foxes, she continued. I'm always excited when I see a fox in the wild. We don't kill them just because we want to. We hunt foxes because they kill sheep. If we didn't call foxes, our livelihood would be put in jeopardy. Hunting foxes is a natural aspect of country life. It's unavoidable. It's as simple as that. It's the way of nature, after all. Strange as it may seem, it's difficult to maintain aloofness when undertaking a long-distance trek on a popular rural trail. Inevitably, one encounters the same people along the way. The instant we entered the White Lion, two unforgettable faces swivelled round, taking us in at a glance. A very dapper dewdrop looked up briefly before re-engaging with the serious business of pub grub. Moored alongside him was the swashbuckling kiwi. He was taking bunkers in readiness for his next foray into the unknown. We joined Hilda and Helen and a new girlfriend who, that evening, had arrived from Holland. We had a raucous evening of beer, roast duck and good-natured jousting banter. The evening was cut short by the thick fog of cigarette smoke that poisoned the air and forced we fresh air fiends to leave the long-legged Dutch trio behind to swig ale until the towels went up. Back at the farm, Shirley was watching TV with her grandson. She rested comfortably in an oversized red armchair watched over by a mounted fox at silent vigil on the windowsill behind her head. Shirley invited us to join her by the fireside to hear the odd nautical lineage of the farmhouse. Most of the timbers and flooring had been salvaged from a decommissioned sailing ship in the late 17th century, at a time when nearby Whitehaven was Cumbria's major seaport. The walls and floors lurched and twisted in all directions to accommodate the skeletal remains of the ancient vessel. I noticed that there were two additional pairs of boots drying by the fire. So many guests sharing a single bathroom, they present a problem to an aged grump with defective plumbing. Later, when swaying towards the bathroom, to make doubly sure bilges were pumped dry before bunking down, I was sure I felt the floor decking planks tilt and bob beneath my feet. That night, the long-forgotten sleep of the innocent came to call. Not a single sound spoiled the silence of the black night. The house, old and long settled in its familiar place, was content and still. The ship's timbers, anchored solid, never creaked nor groaned in remembrance of voyages long past. The silent stone, as though tired of the same old stories, kept secret their gossip and tales. The farmhouse well rehearsed over centuries, was up to the task of refreshing guests with the spiritual nourishment of untroubled slumber.